0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode four of the podcast. I'm your host, Justin, and with me as always is Rob. How you doing, guys? Hope everyone's doing well out there. We want to make this podcast relevant to what's going on right now. So we have an amazing show. We're going to talk about everything that's going on in our country, in the world. And we have an incredible guest, Officer Ed, a police officer from the state of California, is going to join us and talk to us about what's going on and uh, give us his thoughts on
1: the state of affairs this is Riz and uh, I just want to say before we really dive into the meat of all of this uh, that you know what's been going on over the last few days is of course you know devastating on every level obviously the national conversation that we're still having after all these years over police brutality and the way that it affects mostly minority communities is the most devastating part my heart, goes out to everyone in America who feels victimized in what is supposed to be the freest and greatest country in the world but then also to everyone who has to who has had to deal with the aftermath of all of that injustice you know people who have put their life savings into businesses and have watched their businesses get looted and destroyed and burned i live in west la i was Going up to the grocery store. I was on Westwood Boulevard and just driving around and watching all these business owners board up their windows. It's just a really sad state of affairs. It just really hit me and you know, that this is not America. This is just not who we are. It just got me really upset about the whole situation. You know, when it when it shows up at on your street or right down the street from you, that's when it really hits home. So, Jay, do you have anything else to add about that?
0: Being a podcast, obviously, in its infancy, we're episode four. It's really hard to know the right words to say in a moment like this. It's a grand moment. All the attention's on everyone, on the media. And that's why the tone of the show today is so different. I think it's important for us to say collectively that our thoughts and prayers and our actions are with George Floyd's family and friends. They're with the victims of the ongoing looting and violence, as you mentioned And they're also with the victims of oppression and racism that is still prevalent in our society, which pains both of us. I pledge to you and we pledge to you that as we go forward with this podcast, we will work to further the goal of anti-racism, that we won't turn a blind eye to oppression, that we'll acknowledge our privilege and any lack of understanding or education that we both have, and we'll seek to remedy those blind spots. We want this podcast to be unifying. We want it to be an instrument of measuredness, of common ground of compassion and empathy, change and truth. Riz and I will both work very hard to make sure that we sort of color inside those lines and we keep our ears open and we listen to you as you do to us. Uh, We thank you for your continued support for those open ears and minds. And we appreciate your understanding as we navigate these difficult issues together in what is a very tense time.
1: Very well said. Very well said. So I think one of the things we could do at this point is just go over the facts because, you know, facts are often lost nowadays. And some people with the COVID crisis, if you have a business and you're trying to figure out when you could reopen, you might not be completely on the ball about what's been going on about all this. Maybe you don't watch the news every day. So if you are one of those people that has been living under a rock for the last week or two. The police were responding to a supposed forgery taking place in the city of Minneapolis. George
0: Floyd was paying for menthol cigarettes. He went to a bodega, essentially, that was known for selling these, I guess, specific kinds of menthol cigarettes. He went to pay. It's sort of blurry. He may not have even known that he was paying with a a forged 20. He may have. We don't know that the ink was running on the bill. So they could very easily tell. I read that the store owner said that. So the ink was running on the bill. He could tell that it was a Forge 20. And that's when he called the police. George Floyd, what makes me think that he didn't know was he was sitting outside in a car with his friends. You pay with a Forge 20, you get your your merchandise, you leave. So anyway, that's what happened in this store.
1: There is a nine-minute video on the New York Times' site. And and I will post this on all of our various social media sites if you haven't seen it. And in our blog, it's an extremely informative Video because it shows all the angles. It shows exactly what happened. It gives you a narrative and a timeline for everything. But the bottom line is that you basically watch this gentleman get murdered before your eyes as he tells the officers over and over again that he can't breathe. Uh, It's disgusting. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. I mean, there's very few moments in life for a regular civilian where you actually can say you're watching someone get murdered. I mean, this officer has his knee on the back of this guy's neck and he's asphyxiating. It actually made me feel sick to my stomach as I was watching it. I mean, it is really a powerful video and you could, he's pleading for his life. People around him are, are are pleading with the officers and just to no avail. Um, and that's really what set this whole thing off. Um, did I miss anything, Jay? Is that basically the crux of it? The other thing I wanted to note is uh, the discrepancy in the
0: autopsies. There were two autopsies performed. One of them was performed by the county. The other one was independently performed. that was asked for by the Floyd family. The first autopsy says that there are no physical findings to support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. The quote is cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement, subdual restraint and neck compression, which basically means his heart failed. They also noted that fentanyl and methamphetamine use were among significant conditions. But the report didn't say how much of either drug was in Floyd's system or how may that have contributed. They just put it in there. So the independent autopsy is very simple. It says Floyd died of asphyxiation from sustained pressure to the neck and throat. It's pretty clear. I don't know if it's a cover up. I don't know if it isn't. It sure sounds like one to me. That scares me a lot, but it's very clear what happened. You can see it in the video and you can tell by this independent autopsy exactly what happened.
1: It's simple. It's one sentence. It's three words. Sort of piggybacking off that, you know, unlike the Eric Garner case and Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and even going all the way back to Rodney King, the George Floyd case seemed like the first time in a long time where there was unanimity in the fact that this was a murder on the part of the officers. I mean, I've said before, I listened to every far right political commentator you could think of. And I listen to every far left one. And I listen to everyone in the middle. I cannot tell you one single person who was doing the usual, well, let's wait till all the facts come out shtick that usually the right wing does when this kind of thing happens. Everyone, even people like Tucker Carlson, who I, my personal opinion is that he has white nationalist sentiments, um, even he was saying that this was a vicious and brutal abuse of power and and murder. So I will say that I was personally surprised that this became sort of the tipping point that ignited this chaos all over the world. And it is all over the world. You see there was protests today in Belgium and all over Europe. Paris as well. Paris, everywhere. I mean, it's crazy. There is controversy over how long it took for the officer to be arrested but he was arrested. And that is the main thing here. We, we also There's a lot of people who have been saying that he should be charged with first degree murder. I know a fair amount about the legal and I'm not, a, not an attorney, but I work in the legal industry. I could tell you that um, first degree murder would be a great thing to charge him with if you wanted him to walk. First degree murder has to have premeditation. In other words, he had to have woken up and said, I am going to murder a black man. And there is absolutely no evidence that that is the case. So if you charged him with first degree murder, a jury would probably acquit him of that, and he would walk. It's much better that he was charged with third degree murder rather than first degree. It's much more likely that he will do serious jail time for that. I don't believe that this was planned even from watching the video. It's a heat of passion murder. Right now, I want to get into sort of a broader conversation on the topic of law enforcement in America to begin with. And this is a good time to bring in our two things can be true at once model. Two things can be true at once once for all the listeners out there. Number one, law enforcement is a dangerous, selfless job. And 98% of the law enforcement officers strive to serve their communities with honor and distinction. True thing number two, some officers, like in any profession, suck at their job. And this is something that should be okay for us to say, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, because we say it about virtually any profession. We say it about ballplayers. We say it about chefs. We say it about everyone. Okay. Some people just suck at their job. The difference is that when a police officer sucks at the job, oftentimes it results in somebody's civil rights being taken away. And that is the discussion to be had. I would say that 98% of Americans are actually pro law enforcement and understand that they do a very hard job. And that just like in any job, some people suck at it. I mean, Jay, you and I worked in the music industry, we spent a lot of time with black dudes. Okay. I have a lot of black friends. I have a lot of liberal friends. I have never, ever heard any one of my liberal or black friends talk about how they were, quote, anti-law enforcement. It's just not a thing that I think exists. I think even in, especially in minority communities, they value good law enforcement even more because those people are protecting
0: them. The sentiment that I get from the community is that we don't want racism in any aspect of American life not just law enforcement, but law enforcement in and of itself is not bad. Abuses of power are bad in any realm, including law enforcement.
1: Right. I mean, we cannot deny that we are a country of law, we are a nation of laws, and that law enforcement is a very, very important job. Unfortunately, I believe, and this is my opinion, that the right has made it so that if you acknowledge the fact that or if you're willing to acknowledge the fact that some officers might be motivated by racism and aren't necessarily working in the best interests of the community, this means that you are anti-law enforcement. And that's what I reject. You know Why is it so toxic on the right to point out the fact that some officers are just not good at what they do? What I believe is that the right has hijacked two institutions in particular that they sort of claim as their own. Um, And when it comes to those institutions, they engage in what I call patriotism by intimidation. The military. Yeah, the military and law enforcement. Those are the two that being unwaveringly pro-law enforcement is a sign of patriotism on the right. So if you support Black Lives Matter, You are automatically, to your average conservative right-winger, you are automatically anti-law enforcement and therefore un-American. There is a distinction to make.
0: And that is, there is such a thing as a defund the police movement happening on the left. There is a contingent that is talking about defunding the police. And that doesn't mean getting rid of them, but it does mean moving funding over to other areas that can help a community thrive versus, again, the law enforcement contingent being part of that community, which I mean, I completely personally disagree with defunding the police. I think that there needs to be better training and there needs to be reform. But I wouldn't say that defunding the police is going to help anybody.
1: The idea of defunding the police, that's probably a very small minority of people who are of the left who believe that. It is. But I will tell you that
0: John Legend and I mean, there's a growing contingent of people. And I relate this to sort of the Bernie contingent where they don't really know what they're talking about. But it's a cool thing to say. And so it's being said a lot. It's gaining momentum every single day. You're seeing more signs. You're seeing more celebrities say it. And it's a little dangerous, in my opinion. I'm going to get plenty into Bernie later.
1: So don't you worry about that, Jay. All right. I think often those movements are conflated with a movement like, say, Black Lives Matter. And I want to talk about the idea of, is Black Lives Matter even a political movement at all? because Black Lives Matter was an organization that was started to address one issue and one issue only, which is police brutality that is occurring disproportionately in communities of color. I don't believe that is a political issue. Why does that have to be right or left? But of course, just like in law enforcement, there are a few bad apples in the Black Lives Matter community. Most of the people who are members of Black Lives Matter, who support BLM, they are law-abiding citizens who want to get their message heard. But I think if it was a few years ago, there was a a few cops that were killed at a rally. And then it became a very political thing. The right started making it a leftist or a liberal or a left-leaning movement. And that, I think, is a very dangerous thing. Because again, this is a movement that was started to address one issue and one issue only, which is police brutality. And that brutality that is occurring disproportionately in communities of color. So when we make something political, it divides the country when you attach a political ideology to a movement that isn't supposed to be about politics. It really confuses people in middle America and and maybe even abroad when they would normally support the idea of policing the police a little more, of fixing some of the problems with police brutality and addressing them. But When they hear in their media echo chamber, whether they're listening to Fox News or other fringe media on the right, that Black Lives Matter is a liberal ideology and that they want to kill cops, because that has happened a few times, then automatically they start saying, well, this isn't something I'm interested in. That's what leftism is. That's what liberalism is. I want no part of that. I want to support the police. And so I think it's very dangerous to assign political ideologies to things that are not political, the things that are just supposed to be, things that human beings are supposed to just agree upon. I think every human being would agree that less of this problem would be a better thing in our country.
0: This issue is about human beings. It's about people. It's about the fact that people are being taken advantage of. People are being hurt. People are being killed. And that is something that no one should stand for. I don't care what political party you're a part of. However, Black Lives Matter, when you click on the donation page, takes you to Act Blue, And it is a Democratic organization. It is part of the Democratic Party. It's facilitated over $1 billion in donations to Democrats this past election cycle. And it raised, for example, $141 million in April alone. There's not a lot of transparency as to how this money is distributed, and it is on one side of the aisle where a foundation called WinRed, which was I believe was established in 2019, was created by the Republicans in response. So how are you supposed to make sure that an issue like this is not politicized and a movement like this is not politicized when you are connected to the Democratic Party?
1: It, it's a very interesting question. And I wasn't aware of that. But that does sort of go to the one of the things I wanted to talk about in this podcast, which is the left has sort of claimed uh, racial injustice as a cause du jour. I am a liberal. So I believe in racial justice. I believe in social justice. I think there is a lot of social justice that is very righteous and good. You will often hear people on the right put the word warrior after the end, SJW, a social justice warrior. These are people that tend to see everything through the lens of race, sex, you know, sexual orientation, religion, et cetera. And that's when it starts to lose me. So we we should talk about for this for a second, because I don't think any political commentator has ever had this discussion that I've heard of. And this is a very interesting thing. Is the black community even of the left? That is an interesting question to ask. And you, you don't hear anything about it anywhere. You don't. And here are some statistics. And this is pulled right off of Pew Research's website. And you could go research it yourself if you feel inclined. 74% 74% of African Americans are opposed to gun control measures. 74%. 82%, 82% of African Americans are opposed to same-sex marriage. That's shocking to me, okay? 47% of African Americans go to church at least once a week, which is orders of magnitude higher than any other demographic in the country. When you break it down, The black community, by and large, in general, is a pro-Second Amendment, God-fearing, church-going community, certainly not in line with your Upper East Side liberals, that is for sure, who have taken up their shield. Right, exactly. And it's a very interesting thing. We want to be sensitive towards injustice. We want to be social justice warriors to a certain extent. Everyone does. But I wouldn't say that the black community... by by and large, fits into the box of your everyday Democratic voter, especially Democratic white voters. They are far more conservative than any of my friends, any of my white liberal friends here in Los Angeles. That's for sure. And I hung out with a group of black guys for a long time when I came here. They are, again, church-going, gun-owning guys. And that's who they are. And so this goes to sort of a broader discussion that the right has all the time. And as a liberal, something I agree with. This this show is called Down the Middle for a Reason. We want to get to things that we all agree on. Here's something that I agree with. We should stop putting everyone into a neat little group and categories, and instead look at everyone as a unique individual. That is sort of a basic philosophy of conservatism. We judge everyone as an individual, not as a group. Identity politics is divisive, is incredibly divisive. And the truth of the matter is there are good Black people, there are bad Black people there are good cops, there are bad cops. This lesson should should be reiterated to the right as well. Because I would like people on the right to start acknowledging the fact that there are good cops and there are bad cops. So it goes both ways here.
0: If we start dealing with people as individuals, we will be able to effectuate change a lot more easily. Most people do not fit into a very neat box. And that's what identity politics does. It tries to fit everyone into a very neat
1: box. And it just, it doesn't work. Right. I want to talk for a second about videos that we've been seeing recently in the last couple of days of officers kneeling at a lot of these rallies. To me, this is, this is a really moving thing. And I've seen, a, I've seen a lot of videos. I've seen a lot of pictures of it. This is the law enforcement community. By taking a knee, they're saying, I sympathize, I empathize with what you guys are going through. I want to hear you out. I want to acknowledge the problem. I want to address the problem. So I am going to take a knee to show solidarity with you. And that, that is a great thing. That is an inherently great thing. We talked about Ben Shapiro last week on the show. He's a, a, a very prominent conservative commentator. And Ben Shapiro tweeted this morning. He tweeted, It is excellent that police officers are expressing solidarity with those protesting police brutality. Agreed. Absolutely agree with that part. Then he goes on to say, it is terrible that both protesters and officers have adopted the Kaepernick kneeling symbology, which indicts America writ large as a racist nation. See, I I actually had a conversation with someone just yesterday about
0: this exact thing. Why has Colin Kaepernick cornered the market on kneeling? It's a sign of protest. And when you do it together, it's a sign of solidarity. And the truth is, is that Los Angeles has been, it's been a wreck over the past two, three days. A lot of officers decided to engage the crowd today. And it was an amazing day. There were hugs given by police officers and police chiefs. People were, were taking a knee together. They were listening to each other. They were calm and peaceful. And that's because the police were engaging. But I don't know why the knee has to be just because this was done a couple years ago, that the knee is now owned by Colin Kaepernick.
1: But I would say, you know, after reading that Ben Shapiro quote, I just thought, wrong. No, that fact check, false. Mm. That is not what Kaepernick was trying to do with the knee. The knee was not a symbol of everything in America is bad and racist. That was not the intention of the knee. The intention of taking a knee was, again, To address a very specific issue, which is that of police brutality that is disproportionately affecting the Black and Brown communities. That's all it was. The right, I guess maybe because it was happening over the national anthem and there's a lot of sensitivity over that, they took it and made it into this broad based thing where if you take a knee, that means that you hate America. I have never heard. Colin Kaepernick say anything like that. So I think that's absolutely false. And when you have right-wing commentators all sort of unanimously believing that, that the knee is a negative thing because it invokes Colin Kaepernick and Colin Kaepernick hates America, that is the kind of rhetoric that divides this country and doesn't do any good. Now, I don't want to just pick on the right. People on the left are saying some crazy too. Van Jones who I actually really like. He's on CNN a lot. And uh, he usually says very measured, very interesting things. He usually has a really good middle of the road take. He said something after, I think, the first night of protests and riots that was just completely out of his mind crazy. And Jay, play the clip. It's not the racist white person who's in the Klu Klux Klan that we have to worry about. It's the white liberal Hillary Clinton supporter walking her dog in Central Park who would tell you right now, She, you know, she, people like that, oh, I don't see race. Race is no guilt to me. I see us all as the same. I give to charities. Even the most liberal, well-intentioned white person has a, 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 a virus uh, in his or her brain that can be activated at an instant. You know what? You, Van Jones. Like, seriously, if that's what you believe, if that's what you think, we don't have a country anymore. We we can't have a republic under under the idea that all white people, even the most liberal of white people, has a virus in our brains that makes us inherently racist. It is absolute bull. I heard that and I was like, are you serious that you would say something like that? That divides the country just as much as everything on the other side. On my Instagram feed, it's been full of white friends of mine and
0: people that I know apologizing for this exact sentiment. This immediately puts everyone who's white or everyone who's not a person of color on the defensive. And immediately
1: everyone now feels that they have to apologize. Right. And, and, you know, I don't have a problem with apologizing, with empathizing, with acknowledging the situation, with acknowledging the problem. I have a problem with saying, the problem's never gonna get better because I have a virus in my brain.
0: But that's the sentiment. That's what I'm talking about. That's what's pervasive. It's apologizing for that. That's the issue that I'm seeing. It's literally apologizing for the fact that this is in me and it's it's never gonna get fixed and it's
1: never gonna come out. I mean, we're dead on arrival. Right, and, and I've talked a lot, in the first couple episodes about leftism and the difference between leftism and liberalism, that is leftism right there. That kind of ideo- ideology that we cannot grow, we cannot get better in society, and that this is a systemic thing that will be around forever, that tears the country apart. Because like I said, then we might as well just have black states and white states and, and not do the whole experiment of having this melting pot where we intermix and we live together Seamlessly, we shouldn't do that because we can't. We have a virus. and it's just so stupid to say something like that. So let's get into the riots a little bit. The riots uh, were jarring. I mean, we're still watching them. They're actually so this is tw- it's Tuesday night right now. Um, you guys won't hear this pod till Friday, probably, or maybe even over the weekend. So some of this will be outdated. But as we're recording this pod right now, there are riots going on in v- basically every major city. I want to first say, that there is a huge distinction between protesting and rioting. That distinction needs to be very, very clear. While I think the murder of George Floyd was incredibly abhorrent and in every way and just, just absolutely devastating, like I mentioned before, the fact that we all sort of agreed that it was murder made it odd to me that This incited such an immense reaction until I really started thinking about what we've gone through over the last three months and the fact that we've all been on lockdown, essentially a three-month lockdown. You add in a complete lack of leadership from the top, and then this murder of this unarmed black guy just pushes everything over the edge. And I really think that's what's happened. But the problem I have is that the media, for whatever reason seems to be conflating protesting and rioting. Uh, And they're not the same. We have seen
0: peaceful protests. We have seen riots. They're being treated as the same thing, and they certainly aren't. And you can tell in Los Angeles, and I was very thankful for some of the local news today because I was watching, and they were covering a lot of these police officers engaging the crowd and the crowd responding in kind. It was a really beautiful moment today in Hollywood. There were some really great moments in Beverly Hills this morning. And so you see the difference between the last couple days and today. The last few days, we've seen looting, we've seen fires, we've seen an incredible amount of destruction in a number of cities. That is unacceptable. But we've also seen more recently, and it was most of the daytime, I would say, earlier in the day, that a lot of these protests would happen where people who wanted a peaceful protest were trying to make a point and get their voices heard. That is protesting. That's what we saw. And when that happens, it is an amazing act of patriotism, in my opinion, and voicing your opinion and showing up and making your voice heard. That and voting, to me, are two of the things that make this country so great. But rioting is unacceptable. It's terrible. It destroys the American dream. It destroys small business. And... We've seen the media cover this far more than we've seen them cover the the protesting, the peaceful protesting that's happening, and they've sort of swept the peaceful protesting under a rug in lieu of the rioting and
1: called it the same name. Yeah, the media is often lazy when it comes to this stuff. I think it's easier for them to just sort of cover both in the same box. The bottom line here is this, and I don't care who agrees with me or who disagrees with me. This is the bottom line. You have your right to protest is covered under your First Amendment your right to destroy other people's businesses is not covered under our constitution. It's despicable. And there's no excuse for it, no matter how much you think it's sending a positive message about the the issue at hand, it's not. It is absolutely destructive to the cause, and this would be a perfect time to hear from George Floyd's girlfriend who had something to say on the subject. Play the clip, Jay. You can't fight fire with fire, you know? Everything just burns. And I, I've seen it all day today. People hate. They're hating. They're hating. They're hating. They're mad. And he would not
2: want that. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. He would give grace. He would. I
3: stand on that, that today he would still give grace to those people.
0: There was a similar sentiment shared by George Floyd's brother, Terrence Floyd. Let's listen. Like I said, he was
2: about peace. he's about unity. But the things that's transpiring now... Yeah, yeah. They 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 may call it unity, but it's to, it's destructive unity. It's not it's not what he was about. That's not what my brother was about. You know, he he would he would motivate you to channel. If you're angry, it's okay to be angry, but channel your anger to do something positive or make a
1: change another way. That's his own family. Those are both very moving clips, you know. And I think hearing from his family that he wouldn't have been into this, that that wasn't his bag, that wasn't what he was about, should tell you everything you need to know. To take it a step further, I have seen videos now, all over social media, of there was was a protest here. I don't know if this is just a local thing or if you've seen it nationally, but there was a protest here on Rodeo Drive, which is, for those who don't know, who don't live in LA, Rodeo Drive is sort of the heart of wealthy los angeles in beverly hills 90210 most people have probably heard the name rodeo drive it's where all the high-end stores are and where all the rich people live right so there was a protest there where people were holding up signs and looting prada chanting eat the rich eat the rich the worst thing one can do is use george floyd's murder as an excuse to air out all of your other grievances what do high-end stores in beverly hills have to do with any of this It has nothing to do with any of this. Jay, you have something to say? It feels to me that a great number of
0: people have been frustrated. They've been stuck in their homes for three months. They've been lied to by our the administration. They've had to watch Trump give press conferences every day, most of which I'm sure they didn't like. And they are frustrated with the state of the country, the fact that we had to shut down. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they lost their business, regardless it feels to me that this was an excuse for those people to come out and just let off that frustration and create anarchy. And that's unacceptable. It has nothing to do with George Floyd. You can tell
1: that very simply by the clips we just played. Right. And you know what? I'm going to say something a little bit controversial right now on the left. Jay, give me my controversial music. This is all part of the sort of greater Bernie Sanders ideology, and this is the best way to distinguish between a liberal and a leftist. The Bernie Sanders leftist far left ideology is that everything, all of these other symbols, wealth and rodeo drive, this is all fruit of the poisonous tree. In other words, the tree that birthed the American spirit and the American capitalist free market ideology is fundamentally corrupt and evil. And therefore, anything that derives from that system has to be destroyed and is essentially seen in the same light as systematic racism or police brutality. This is why I think Leftism is an extremely flawed ideology because the facts just simply don't bear that out. What does capitalism have anything to do with this? But I think your average everyday leftist believes that these things are intertwined. It's all part of a corrupt system. Police brutality is a problem. Capitalism isn't. It's perfectly fine to say that. And I think most liberals are able to say that. We want to fix the injustices that happen in the law enforcement community and the relationship between law enforcement and minority communities or communities of color. We also don't feel that it's necessary to tear down the tenets of capitalism, which has provided more jobs, more wealth to your average everyday American than any other system could possibly have provided. Okay. Let's talk about black basketball players for a second. You know where they shop? Rodeo Drive. Are they part of the system too? Are they part of the evil capitalist system because they happen to have a skill that you don't and they used it to make themselves better and to make money? This is all part of an ideology that is just wrong. And I will say that as a liberal, till I'm blue in the face. It is wrong.
0: These movements are being confused. They're being utilized in a very violent way. And I think I I actually have something from Martin Luther King Jr., who I know may be a very stereotypical figure to quote here, but I want to quote something that is not a stereotypical Martin Luther King Jr. quote. Uh, It's from his book, Stride Toward Freedom, and it's from 1958. That's how far back this goes. And it's six key principles to nonviolence. First, one can resist evil without resorting to violence, which supports everything that you just said. Second, nonviolence seeks to win the friendship and understanding of the opponent, not to humiliate him. Third, evil itself, not the people committing evil acts should be opposed. Fourth, those committed to nonviolence must be willing to suffer without retaliation as suffering itself can be redemptive. Fifth, nonviolent resistance avoids external physical violence, which is what we're seeing, and internal violence of spirit as well, which is what we're going to see once these are over, I guarantee it. The nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he also refuses to hate him. The resistor should be motivated by love in the sense of the Greek word agape, which means understanding or redeeming goodwill for all men. The sixth principle is that the nonviolent resistor must have a deep faith in the future, stemming from the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. Now, these are unbelievably forward-thinking things to say, and that's 1958. That's forward thinking for
1: now, it's unbelievable. What a man. I mean, like seriously, when you when you read that, I mean, he's in the same conversation as the founding fathers, you know? And everyone, there, there is such a lack of historic relevance today. I think everyone just needs to go back and just read about Martin Luther King. I think that would help the entire situation. Uh, because, you know, the bottom line here, Jay, is that almost everyone is on the same page here. And it's the politics that have divided everyone and I think if you sit down and talk to people sensibly, black people, white people, poor people, rich people, we can all get on the same page and, and agree on very basic principles that this country was founded on and that are righteous and good, and we can leave all the baggage behind. And that's what we're trying to do here with this show. And that's the problem with, I think, bringing it back to what you're talking
0: about, about putting a group of people in a box. You take away the opportunity to have a one on one conversation with them and treat them as an individual and say, Hey, we, I mean, it's what you and I are doing here. It's, we believe a lot of the same things and let's have that conversation. Let's figure out where we can unite each other. If you have conversations like that, enough of them, then it encompasses the whole country and then it encompasses the whole world. I mean, it's very
1: idealistic of me to say, but that is the truth individualism is something that we need to get back to. We need to get out of the realm of identity politics. We need to absolutely acknowledge that communities of color in this country do face problems, disproportionate problems with policing and everything else, poverty, lack of jobs, lack of education, that a lot of other communities don't. We have to do things to fix those, but we have to treat everything, everyone as an individual because if we didn't, there would not be Barack Obamas. There would not be LeBron James. There would not be people who are able to do incredible things. So I want to get into a little bit of how you lead in a time of crisis. I want to give just a little analogy as a dad of young kids, because I think it's an important analogy. And I am in no way giving this analogy to claim that I am a perfect parent, because I'm not. I screw up a lot. Sometimes I give myself advice that I go against, and we're all human. But uh, I think this is a good analogy for just the general topic of leadership. I think the thing that separates kids from adults is that we both, both adults and children are sort of feeling the same emotions all day. And my kids, by the way, uh, are, six and seven and a half. We all are going through the same things during our day. We're all feeling the same emotions. We're feeling frustration and hunger and anger and uh, tiredness and, you know, silliness. And we all are going through all of that. But the difference between being an adult and a child and a child is that adults are able to regulate their emotions. So we have learned. Some adults. Some adults, exactly. Actually, yeah, that's a good clarification, some adults. So we have learned over time how to not vocalize every emotion that we're feeling. So you don't go up to your boss today and go, I'm hungry, I need a snack. You know, it, it just doesn't work like that. Kids, on the other hand, have no ability, at least most kids, to rein in those emotions. So everything just comes out the second they're feeling something. They haven't learned to suppress their emotions like we have. So I'm driving home with well, my whole family and my daughter, who's, uh, who's seven and a half. We were coming from the poppy fields in Northern California, which we we took for a, for a, a, a day trip. It was really lovely. And uh, we we didn't pack enough snacks. And we were driving home. And my daughter was whining in the backseat, I'm hungry. When are we going to be there? You know, which kids do all the time. And there are sort of two tacks you could take at that point. The sort of the way that our parents' parents were raised, (laughs) the, the way they would handle it is, well, life is hard. Deal with it, you know. And you could do that. And sometimes I do do that. Sometimes I'm not in the mood to be kind and compassionate. Sometimes I'm in the mood to say, well, sorry, I'm hungry too, tough. But what when you do that, what ends up happening is it gets worse. The whining gets worse because they feel like nobody is listening to them, like, like they're not getting through to anyone, like their emotions aren't being recognized. On the contrary, if you go out of your way to sympathize and empathize with them, and you say, I'm hungry too. And I know how hunger feels. It's terrible. Your stomach hurts. You don't feel right. You feel weak. You start getting a headache. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. And I'm going through the same thing. We're going through it together. And we're going to go home. And I promise you, we, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to eat something. Because we're both so hungry. And being hungry is really a terrible feeling all of a sudden, it miraculously stops. Because they what kids want to recognize is that their emotions aren't being ignored, that they're being treated like human beings, and that you are saying to them, I understand what you're going through.
0: I think it's pretty universal. Honestly, I think that's probably the point you're going to make here is that if we are treated with the same respect that we expect, then you're going to have a much calmer much more attentive audience, but whoever it is that you're dealing with. A
1: better outcome. Yeah. First of all, so I don't have to print a, a retraction later or clarify, I am not comparing the protesters to my little children. Okay. <laughs> I want to make that perfectly clear. That's not my intention. Okay. What I am doing is saying that the principles are the same. When an entire community feels victimized, what a good leader needs to do is say, I get it. I understand. In fact, I want to learn more about it. I want you to tell me how you feel. Because even though I might not agree with you, I want to learn so that I can change, perhaps change the way I feel. Maybe I won't change the way I feel. But the very first thing I want to do is learn how you're feeling. What you don't want to do is scold the person for feeling the way they, or the group for feeling the way they do.
0: I was having a great conversation with uh, a friend of the podcast, Jeff Norskog, today. And he actually said, you know, essentially what you're saying. He said, if Trump were smart, he would create a task force to eliminate racial injustice, and he would put Barack Obama to lead it. And if he really wanted to allow these people to feel like they were heard, this would be an amazing thing to do. And I I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to mention that tonight because it's such a great idea. That is called
1: empathy. When Trump goes out and says, this is nonsense, you know, we, and basically just says bad things about the small subset of people that are rioting and doesn't acknowledge the good in the protest, doesn't have any desire to learn more. Again, we've talked about this before. Trump is a president that has no desire to get smarter. Part of being a leader is to understand things that you don't currently understand. He will never be a part of the black or brown community. So he, as a leader, needs to go to them and say, how do you feel? What can I do to fix it? But Trump has no ability to be empathetic towards anyone but Trump. And I know that. There are certain right-wingers who are probably listening to this right now and say, well, actually, he's very empathetic towards my needs. He took a Bible and went to this church and took a picture of it, shows that he's a God-fearing religious man and that religion will prevail over all of this, blah, 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 blah. The bottom line here is that if you are an evangelical or a religious person that supports Trump, you have been used. Even with that, he will not take the time to open the Bible and learn what's inside. The fact that he stood in front of the church and he
0: held the Bible up and he didn't pray, he didn't, as you said, open the Bible, the whole thing was just, it was ridiculous. And it felt ridiculous. It felt fake. If that wasn't palpable to any Christian person watching that, then you need to take
1: another look at what went on. It's insulting. And if you're part of that community, you should be insulted by it. So Tucker Carlson, who we know is a big
0: fan of Trump, typically. He's on Fox News regularly, and he is, he is a right-wing Republican. He even had something to say about Trump's lack of leadership and what he did the other day, and here's the clip. This was a distressing moment. The first requirement of leadership is that you watch
2: over the people in your care. That's what soldiers want from their officers. It's what families need from their fathers. It's what voters demand from their presidents. People will put up with almost anything if you do that. You can regularly say embarrassing things on television. You can hire Omarosa to work at the White House. All of that will be forgiven if you protect your people. But if you do not protect them, or worse than that, if you seem like you can't be bothered to protect them, then you're done. It's over. People will not forgive weakness. That's the one thing. By the way, that is not a partisan point. It is human nature. Nero is the only Roman emperor whose name most people still remember. Why? Because he abandoned his nation in a time of crisis, and 2,000 years later, we still don't forgive him.
0: That's a pretty
1: strong quote from Tucker Carlson. Very strong. I don't like Tucker at all, his ideology. Uh, like I, I said earlier in the podcast, I think he actually leans towards a white supremacist ideology most of the time. But he is a, an incredibly brilliant speaker and he he's very talented, is what I will say. When someone like Tucker Carlson, who has been on your side, is saying that kind of thing, you're in serious trouble. If you follow Obama on any of his social media, his response, as usual, was measured and perfect. Um... And I'm not saying you have to love Obama just because I love Obama. But what I am saying is that he took the time to recognize the issue, to show empathy towards people who are feeling that, to understand the DNA of the country and how these issues manifest, and then to also condemn very strongly the rioters and the people who are causing destruction and who are using this cause to, again, air out all their grievances about America. And it was just that response versus Trump's Twitter, which is basically his only response. It just shows you how far we've, we've fallen. I'd love to
0: read a paragraph from Obama's piece that he wrote. And again, to clarify my position, I was not a fan of his as a legislative president. I didn't like a lot of the things that he did, but we can both agree time and time again that the way he held himself in his rhetoric was really quite incredible. And this is no exception. So this is from Obama's piece that he wrote. The point of protest is to raise public awareness, to put a spotlight on injustice, and to make the powers that be uncomfortable. In fact, throughout American history, it's often only been in response to protests and civil disobedience that the political system has even paid attention to marginalized communities. But eventually, aspirations have to be translated into specific laws and institutional practices. And in a democracy, that only happens when we elect government officials who are responsive to our demands. I love that he took the country to school. He sat us all down in our little chairs with our pencils and he said, This is how this goes. And he
1: laid it out. Here's how you effectuate change. And I love that he did that. Love it. I could print that out and put it over my bed. I'm going to turn it over to Justin now because he has a story that I think examines the idea of white privilege, and it will be a great preface for our interview that's coming up in the few minutes. So I was in a band, not sure our listeners know
0: that. We're both musicians, Riz and I. We were on a B-market tour with Foxy Shazam, great band. We were in some pretty sketchy locales. One of them was sort of middle of nowhere, Arizona. We had the bus parked in a parking lot in front of a strip mall. And right directly in front of us was this store that had really weird things like knives with dragons on the end of it. And we decided to go in only to be told, well, we're not really open yet. But if you guys are going to buy stuff, come on in. It was just very odd. For whatever reason, we all decided we're going to buy some brass knuckles. I was like, okay, well, I'm alone a lot because I was one of the only people to leave the bus before 5 p.m. i like to explore the cities and each place we were to see the character and get an idea of what was going on because you can sort of forget where you are when you're on tour that long. And I thought to myself, well, while I'm on this B Market tour and I'm in some sketchy places, I could, I mean, you know, a six foot one, very skinny Jewish guy is going to do what with brass knuckles? I don't know, but I thought it was a good idea at the time. I purchased these brass knuckles. I got back to the bus. I put them in a zipper pocket in my bag behind an Altoids tin. And of course, never got them out again. Uh, That particular tour finishes. We come back home for the Thanksgiving break. I am going home to Florida. I take almost everything out of my bag that needs to be taken out. I look at the Altoids tin and say, I don't need to take this Altoids tin out. Zipper it back up. Go to the... Now it's in this... When I first realized that we have a problem. We're going through and gets halted. And I'm thinking, of course, that it's the person in front of me. And I'm like, oh, this moron. Come on, guy. And that's when the person behind the, he leans over to me and he says, uh, sir, do you have brass knuckles in your bag? To which I obviously extend a, uh, yeah, that, those are mine. He then takes me aside. He places me in a chair. And that's when I'm introduced to Officer Ed, who explains to me that under any other normal circumstances, he would take these and throw them out But it's a on a major holiday. And as he said, there are federal officers there. And he has to follow protocol. He recognized that I was a musician in a band. He took me through the back door, handcuffed me. He was truly incredible. He was warm. He told me how to sit so that I didn't lose circulation. I mean, it was, we had as good as a conversation as one can have while sitting in the back of a cop car. So I got checked in. I went through the whole thing. And yes, I spent the night in 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 jail essentially i got out the next morning
1: you got to tell a little bit about what you did that night just
0: I'm i mean i walked into what i believe is the, the drunk tank right behind a, a number of levels of security they had me grab a pillow and blanket on my way now i'm a kid i'm like wearing a cashmere ralph lauren uh sweater and i'm wearing ironically a striped t-shirt i walk into the drunk tank there's the wall is lined with bunks and there's a toilet to the right And sort of a half little wall. It's not even a wall. It's just like a little thing sticking up. Everyone can see whatever you're doing on the toilet. And so I first prayed that um, I didn't have to go to the bathroom. And then I was like looking around because I didn't know what to do. And this lovely man who was on a bottom bunk and the top was empty. goes, hey, man, you can bunk up here. So I'm like, great. That's so nice of you. And I jumped up and I tried to sleep and close my eyes and just like hide and pretend I wasn't there as much as possible. Honestly, for as traumatic an experience as that could have been, it was, I I was very lucky in that nothing terrible happened to me other than the fact that I was in jail. I must have been like 5 a.m. I hear an officer say, chow time, fellas. He actually said that like in the movies. Maybe 15, 20 minutes goes by after the meal was served and my name got called on the loudspeaker. The guy below me goes, "Uh, you're getting out. And I said to him, I really hope so. He goes, well, that's what that means. I leave, my brother and a lawyer are waiting for me in the lobby. And this becomes the most important part of this story to me. What happens afterwards? Obviously, I was treated very well. And I have to believe that it was because I was civil and I was very reasonable, but also I didn't seem like a threat to anyone, despite the fact that I had brass knuckles on my back. They weren't on me. They weren't being used. It was a mistake. And I explained that from the beginning, a very stupid mistake, but it was a mistake nonetheless. What happened when I got out was this. Everyone here knows my father's an ambassador. We heard him on the last podcast. He wanted to call the attorney general immediately of the state of California. I mean, that's I'm in a position of privilege. So there's no way around stating that. We hired a lawyer immediately. That lawyer got my arrest, moved to a detention. You can't even find my mugshot now. My court date kept on getting pushed back. And first, it was with the city prosecutor. And then it was with his assistant. And then it just like kept on getting downgraded. And finally, I went in. My lawyer called me. He said, you have, we have a court date. Wear a suit. And so I met him in front of the courthouse. We went into the building. I sat in the waiting room. We checked in. A guy in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts came out. He grabbed my lawyer. They went back there. They were back there for maybe 10 minutes. They walk out. My lawyer says, okay, we're done. And we leave. And I never spoke to a single individual while I was at the courthouse because I'm a first-time offender, and obviously, once again, I'm white, and I hired this lawyer and had the money to do so. My record was expunged. This never existed and never happened, and I'm not a felon because of those circumstances. In those moments, my entire life flashed before my eyes, and I really saw how easy it is for someone who is making a stupid mistake who is not in the position that I'm in to become a felon overnight, not be able to get a job, not be able to get an apartment, and be stuck in this situation where they have to turn to other means to survive, all because of something really dumb, and because of where they live, maybe the color of their skin, depending on the circumstances. And that, to me, was very eye-opening, and it was awakening to me.
1: Poignant story, for sure. The funniest part about it is that you then formed a relationship with this officer that arrested he you, was, right? He
0: just treated me so well and with such respect. And I was so thankful for it. I wrote him a commendation letter to his superior and just wanted to thank him. It could have been such a traumatic moment in my life. It could have- You would be a, would a, be a felon, felon, right? Yeah, now, yeah, convicted I felon. mean, even yeah. the experience could have been traumatic. And he really made it digestible. The experience of being there and as terrifying as that was, and it's so outside of my experience, He went above and beyond the call of duty in my opinion in that circumstance and some may say it's privilege i attest that to the fact that he is an amazing officer and he takes his job very seriously and he does it with a great amount of pride but yeah we kept in touch and i asked him to be in one of our music videos later on which he unfortunately couldn't do and so then i reached out to him for the podcast so without further ado here's officer ed hey folks you might have heard some beeps throughout that story That is just to protect Officer Ed's identity as he is doing this interview as a citizen who wants his thoughts to be heard. So here's where the interview with Officer Ed was supposed to be. But we ended up getting into so much material and talking for such a long time that we thought we'd put the entire thing in its own bonus episode for you to enjoy. So here's a short preview of what the interview sounded like. The full interview will be posted over
3: the weekend. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. I mean, if I have a bad day and I don't like what I'm doing, somebody's going to get hurt. This is not the type of job you take lightly. You take an oath and you take a job, take it seriously, because this is not a carpenter job, a mechanic job. This affects people's lives. Every decision you make affects people's lives. In my opinion, they have to revisit the whole system as in training because honestly, it's it's decades outdated. I mean, we never had to change it because this is the way we do things. Let's improve this. Let's improve it's a business decision. Let's improve. How can we improve? Law enforcement. How can we improve hiring patterns? How can we improve the training, the actual standards uh, of what we need? There is a breakdown in our, in our family values, in our, in our in our education from home. People nowadays expect teachers to teach their kids. So if nobody's watching, and you got no police to enforce it, do you really think people will do the right thing? When you're not affected, you're gonna post the the. The Black Lives Matter or your, on your Facebook or social media. I, I want to be I want to be part of the movement. But if you really want to be part of the movement, citizenship, that is what, what it's all about. You, you want to do the right thing. Vote for the people who you know are not going to be bought by special interests. Vote for the people that are not going for lobbyists. This is what America needs. We need people just to talk three different points of view that can actually say this is right and this is wrong. It doesn't matter what I believe in, what I feel. This is what's right.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. That about does it for us for episode four. We really appreciate you guys listening into this. It was uh, We took this podcast very seriously and we're thankful that you guys gave us your time as we try and bring some of these issues to light and continue our discussion. Make sure you go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. As we always say, if you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media, Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, downthemiddlepc on Twitter, and downthemiddlepod on Facebook. If those are too confusing, you can always go to our website, and they're all up there. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can follow me at, at Justin Siegel on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow Riz at at Rob Lifer on Twitter because now you have social media, hooray. I
1: have social media now, yeah, yeah. Well, I always did, but now it's like, it's unprivatized. By the way, when you go to give us a review, make sure you give us five stars because giving us five stars will actually really get our ratings up there, get more people listening. If you're gonna give us anything less than five stars, don't give us a review.
0: Thank you all for joining us. We will talk to you next week. Signing off, I'm Jay. I'm Riz. Please
1: stay safe out there. Good night.